and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm Adea Ocher, the managing editor of the LA Review of Books. Today we have a very special conversation between Maxine Hong Kingston and Tom Lutz, our editor-in-chief. This conversation took place a few weeks ago at the beautiful house of Reza Aslan and Jessica Jackley. It was in this beautiful backyard, sort of crowned by a large oak tree, underneath which Maxine Hong Kingston and Tom sat and discussed Maxine's career, her writing, and her thoughts on our current moment. Maxine Honkinson is another one of our guests who doesn't need an introduction, but I will introduce her nonetheless. Maxine is the author of The Woman Warrior, Chinaman, and The Fifth Book of Peace, among many other works. She's the recipient of numerous awards, including the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Presidentially Conferred National Humanities Medal, the Medal for Distinguished Contribution for American Letters from the National Book Foundation, and the F. Scott Fitzgerald Award. She worked for many years as senior lecturer in creative writing at UC Berkeley, and she lives in Oakland, California. I can also attest to her being an absolutely lovely woman. And I'm so excited that we have this dialogue for this week's LARB Radio Hour. Let's listen. Thanks. As most of the people that I talked to tonight, and I, I talked to, I think most of you, we all agree that Maxine Hong Kingston has been an incredibly important literary force and humanist force and activist force in our lives, and we're incredibly grateful to be just sharing the room with you. And so thank you so much for accepting our Lifetime Achievement Award and for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And because I know a lot of you have your own questions and your own things that you'd like to talk with Maxine about, I want to have our part of the conversation be fairly brief and then turn it over to you all. We have had a wonderful time over the last couple of days because Maxine was at UC Riverside last night for an event, and then we got to drive out to LA together today and have dinner last night. We've been talking about so many different things. One of the things that I asked her at one point was about how gratifying it must feel to think about Woman Warrior at this point in the history of literature, because when it came out, it was something new under the sun. It was, there was something about a memoir that was a novel, that was a collection, that was a a hybrid text, that was so new and exciting for us as a literary community. And it was so new that, in fact, it had a little trouble getting launched. Yes. The reason it was having trouble getting out there is that nobody knew what it was. One of the first rejections I got, let me see, my agent sent it to Little Brown and Norton and to Knopf. And I can't remember whether it was Little Brown or Norton. One of them sent me a rejection, and it said, we don't know what this is. This this is a pig in a poke. And so, you know, then you have to look up, what is a pig in a poke? A poke, I think a poke has two meanings. One is it's a bonnet. It's a bonnet that covers, that sort of 
hides the face so the sun doesn't get at it. And then a poke is also like a, I think it's like a bag. And you put the pig in it and you take the pig to market and nobody's going to buy the pig unless you take it out of the poke so that you can see what it looks like. And so they were calling my book a pig in a poke. But then Knopf took it, and I don't think they knew what to do with it. They didn't know how to categorize it, so they called it a young adult. So it came out as a YA. I think it's because the main character is a kid, so let's, let's just call it a YA. And the closest they could come to thinking of what to call it is a memoir. My editor made up that subtitle, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts. And I thought that was pretty smart because uh, a memoir is memories from a certain point of view. I sort of don't like it because it also has a connotation that it could be false memory. To this day, they cannot really categorize it well. There's one paperback edition, it might be up there, on the front cover, it says uh, National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction. And then you turn it around and back, and it says fiction. (laughs) (laughs) It gets published in Great Britain, and it did get reviewed. It got lots of reviews because it had already done well in the U.S. And all those reviews, every single one of them, had the question, is this fiction or nonfiction? And all kinds of standards about what fiction can do and, and the truth that should be in nonfiction and they can't f- figure it out. And, and so the, the book did... I mean, nobody wants the to buy a book that has, that all you read in the reviews is something like that. And Mm. so (laughs) it just tanked in Great Britain. But a a couple of years went by and Sonny Mehta became head of Picador. And he picked up the woman warrior and he just relaunched it brand new as if it had just come out and it had a completely different reception. I think by that time there were people who were working with bridging genres like Truman Capote and Norman Mailer writing history as a novel, novel as history. And so people had They'd worked out that there's a big boundary. The border between fiction and nonfiction is very wide, and you can work in that middle range. I also think it's a new way of writing autobiography. And, oh, I've got to tell you this. Barack Obama told me that uh, when he was writing his autobiography, he read The Woman Warrior, and I taught him how to write his life story. (laughs) If I had known that, I would have given you a Lifetime Achievement Award. (laughs) Well, you did. Oh, you know what I figured out, what Barack Obama learned from me? You know that first book about, uh, what is it, his father, what's the name of that? Dreams of my father. Well, he wrote about his mother. And 
I don't think he was very complimentary about his mother. I think he was a he was embarrassed that she kept taking him to see Black Orpheus. And, uh, and I thought, that's what he learned from me. He learned how to say some bad things about his mother. <laughs> we have a chemist here who said to me, as I was talking to him about his research, I was asking him about the relationship between his theoretical research and kind of applied versions of it. And he said, well, what we like to say, we scientists like to say, is that we can tell you what is true, but we can't tell you what's real. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like you were working that line in Woman Warrior about the relationship between what's true and what's real. And there are also lots of reasons why, when you were talking about your family, that you had to be a little bit careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My family, my parents and relatives, they're illegal aliens. My father stowed away on a ship from Cuba to New York and oh and he won my mother's visa at the gambling table and so everything was illegal and and we were brought up to think that you know don't let anybody know who we are or we'll all get deported and then as a writer I really want to tell those stories I mean those stories are so adventurous. I mean, who could resist? My father was caught when he got to New York, and they deported him back to Cuba, and then he got on a, he stowed away on another boat, and then he, he, got, he got into New York Harbor again, and they caught him again, and they deported him again, and then he got back on another boat. And the third time, you know, it's, it's a fairy tale. I mean, the third time he makes it, and he's making his way through um, New York. He's heading for a haven in Chinatown, and he sees a newspaper, and Lindbergh had just landed in Paris. And my father just said, we did it. You know, I wanted to tell those stories, but I, I could not because if I wrote them straight, we would all get deported. And so I just found this way of writing in which the reader would think, oh, this is so fantastic. She must have made it up. And there's another reason that I write in a way that's both real and true and imaginative because my whole family, they are really dreamers. There's a custom that we have. And I, I've since found that there's a tribe that's sort of in Southeast Asia where dreams control their lives. And so we have a custom, just like this tribe, where you get up for breakfast and and everybody tells their dreams. And then the father of this tribe would be the one that would tell you what your dream means and what you should do about it. In our family, it was more my mother who would tell us. But, you know, it would be things like, let's say you dreamed that you did something bad to somebody, and then your parent would say, well, then today you go find him and you give him a gift. It's to carry out your dream into the real world. And so... So what is a dream? Is it fiction or nonfiction? And I write about real people 
But real people have dreams and they have imaginations. And so to write truly about them, I have to find this way of telling reality and reality includes our imagination and our dreams. This is not a very good transition, but I'm just dying to ask you about it. It is related in that part of the work that you've done over the last decades has been working with veterans of war from Vietnam through the Gulf Wars and working with them doing writing workshops and meditation workshops and kind of getting their dream lives, in a sense, back in order, if, mm-hmm. if that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that work? Yeah, and the veterans are even older than that. We've had World War II veterans, and we had one woman from the Spanish Civil War, yeah. and that older generation's dying off. But I thought that was interesting, too, to have generations, because here's the World War II generation, And here is the Vietnam generation. And they did not like each other Mm. because here's the Vietnam veterans come back very cynical. It's like they've been had. They were sent out to fight a losing war. And meanwhile, here are these patriots who are the World War II generation. And so I I thought it was interesting to have this father-son fight among our people. But now the World War II people are gone. And now the Vietnam veterans, now they're the father figures. Mm -hmm. And here come the people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, the, the new veterans, they don't want much to do with the older veterans. It's like, you don't understand. You know, we went through something that nobody will understand. So we have to find our own way back. And so, you know, we invite them to our group. But, you know, the, they don't quite want to come. They want to plan something on their own. So what the experienced people have done is, you know, go out to these new communities of young people. And, uh, you know, for example, there's Vietnam Veterans for Peace. And then the young ones come back and say, no, we don't want to join anything like that. We're going to have the the Iraq Veterans for Peace. And so they just have a, a separate organization. But they are getting together. To answer your question, I guess I first started thinking about how to help or what to to do about veterans coming home from war. First of all, I was thinking about it because I I have two brothers who were in the Vietnam War, and they were coming home, and one of them very damaged, and trying to think of what to do for them. But then I went to a couple of retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, and it was his idea to have reconciliation retreats in which he would bring Vietnamese and American veterans together. And these would be like three, four-day retreats, and people would meditate, sitting meditation, walking meditation, eating meditation, the noble silence, and then at the end, he had a hugging meditation, which he invented during the civil rights movement. 
So he was with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the South, and they were doing all their marches. And, and you know, when you go on a peace demonstration, there's so much energy and love. And, and he said that, Thich Nhat Hanh said that this black woman, this warm, happy black woman, just ran up to him and gave him a great big hug. And he said, I, I just, I just stood there like a stick because you're not supposed to, women are not supposed to be hugging monks. Monks are not supposed to get hugged by women. And so <laughs> he said, I just, I just stood there like a stick. And, but then he worried about that because he knew this woman, you know, out of her exuberance. What he worried about was he couldn't, he didn't respond correctly. He didn't hug her back. So he meditated on it, and he invented hugging meditation, which is, it's a very ceremonial. You stand apart, and you bow to the Buddha-to-be who's in front of you, and you contemplate all the beauty and goodness in this other person. And then you walk toward them, and you bow again, and then you hug. And you hug for three breaths. You do three, they're holy breaths, spiritual breaths together. And then you separate, and you bow again. And, and so he taught that to the war veterans. So here were these Vietnamese and Americans, veterans, hugging each other. And Thich Nhat Hanh would say, he said, when you hug one Vietnamese, you hug them all. So he's saying to these American soldiers, you have now hugged all of us, including the ones you fought. And I was looking at that, and I was, and I was saying, yeah. And also, when you hug one American, you hug us all too. So when we have these, okay. So this is what happened during Thich Nhat Hanh's retreats, and I was there, and I went to three of them. And then I thought, wait, I think these veterans need something more. They need an art. And so I started giving writing workshops within Thich Nhat Hanh's community. And it was only for veterans. And my idea was that uh, they would transform their experiences into a written form. And writing is is an intellectual art, and so you can take feelings and have your mind work on them. And also, as you write a story, you understand it and you find meaning and you find form. They just came back from chaos. Their bodies are in chaos. The world is in chaos. They've just been through explosions. War is very loud. And so here we're going to do something quiet, like meditation and writing. And as you write, you give form to whatever's happening and to your life. And it's a way 
of expressing feelings. It's a way of making history. We actually change experiences when we put it into writing because the battle is not the same as the battle that's written. So we change what we perceive and as we create this art, we also change ourselves. And so I thought of it as the veterans coming home, coming home to this country, but also their souls coming back to their bodies and their minds are coming back. Another model is that mm. my mother is a, is a veteran of the Japanese and Chinese War, and she was there at the bombing of Canton, and she was a medic. She would say that during battle and during bombs and loud noises, your soul jumps out of your body. And I told this to the veterans, and they, yes, it does happen, you know, your consciousness just goes out. You hear that about people who are dying. They will say that they see themselves down here. Well, she says that that happens. And she had rituals for how to bring the soul back. And, and my idea was that it's art that can help you bring it back. And the writing of the story, the painting of what you have seen. Some of the veterans are painters and some are movie makers. But I think it's the writing the word-by-word that brings people home. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You are listening to a conversation between Maxine Honkingston and Tom Lutz. We'll return to that shortly. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now we'll return to our conversation between Maxine Hong-Kingston and Tom Lutz. I was taken by what you said about the way in which the writing changes what happened, and therefore can also change the harm that what happened has done. Yes. Yes. And you talked last night a little bit about moral harm. 
You know, what happens when somebody comes home from battle? We've all been trying to name it. It's been called Soldier's Heart. It's been called, oh, the, uh, the Germans call it homesickness. The French call it nostalgie. I guess it means like nostalgia for home. Shell shock. And lately, I guess being more scientific, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the latest thing, they've been calling it moral injury. Even the VA has been calling it that. I think this is a very important understanding that when we human beings participate in something as inhumane as a war, then we have done something morally wrong to ourselves. One of the veterans that I work with, his name is Roman Martinez, and he writes about picking up bodies and just really, really gross stuff. And, and he would, like an alcoholic, he would say, oh, I haven't killed anybody for 21 years, uh, five months, and three days. And, oh my gosh, that, yeah. oh, uh, what Roman wrote about was, he said I was raised as an altar boy. I was an altar boy. And what I learned was, thou shalt not kill. You don't have to have been an altar boy. Just growing up as a civilized human being, we learned that we should not kill. And then you go through basic training, and, and then you, you go somewhere. Okay, it's very clear that you have done moral injury to yourself by if you went and broke a commandment. But even if you were just present and you witness awfulness, you didn't even have to kill anybody. I am morally injured when I pay my taxes and it goes directly to war. I have injured myself morally. So I think this is a really interesting way for people to think about how we're going to heal ourselves if we have done moral injury. And here's where um, writing comes in. The very best writing is moral conflict. And so when the veterans write stories in which they faced what they have done or what they participated in, they get better. There's an exercise that I give them. I present the Buddhist precepts as plot devices, such as, you can take the Ten Commandments, do that same thing. Thou shalt not kill. Okay, tell me a story about that uh, commandment and how you kept it or how you broke it. And so um, I noticed that um, a lot of stories were happening like, oh, the Viet Cong woman got killed. Uh, you know, a lot of passive voice. And when I gave them the list of precepts, and I said to choose one and write its story and your experience of it, the people that chose the precept, thou shalt not kill, for the first time, they were able to write an active sentence. Like, I killed the Viet Cong guerrilla woman. And those stories are so powerful, so direct. This is another Buddhist idea, too. 
to face reality. Don't turn away from what's real. So using words to help you enter a scene from the past and then finding the words so that you can remember every part of what happened. As you write one part of the story, one part of the scene, you will be able to see the next part of it. You know, there could be a, a explosions of memory, you forget stuff. There's also flashes and, and bombs and noise going off. Your consciousness does perceive a lot, but when you write the story, more of it will come back to you and you will see more and more. And then, as you continue the story, especially if you can write from points of view, everybody's points of view, and not just your own, but the enemy's point of view. One veteran writing about pursuing this Viet Cong woman through the jungle. Oh, inspired by me, he started calling her the woman warrior. And then he did it from her point of view, how it was to be pursued. This man... He killed her, but he, he didn't admit that for, for a long time. All he did was uh, he took her hammock and he carried it back from Vietnam. He carried it with him in college. He kept it for 20 years. He always had that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he started with a meditation with Thich Nhat Hanh, also writing this story. Then um, we had a ceremony on the beach on the last night of this retreat, and he burned his hammock at the bonfire. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's like he was able to let go of some uh, of it. Let go of some of the harm. Mm -hmm. We had a, a lot of fun last night. Because we were giving a Lifetime Achievement Award, Maxine put together a presentation which was a kind of reading through all of her books, little snippets from book to book through a lifetime of achievement. Mm -hmm. There was parts from uh, Woman Warrior, from Chinaman, from Tripmaster Monkey, this fake book, from the fifth book of peace. At the end, you read a little bit from the end of I Want a Broad Margin to My Life. Mm -hmm. And I'd love if you just talk a little bit about the end of that book. <laughs> And what's happened since the end of that book? And then we'll turn it over to the folks. Well, at the very last page of uh, I Love a Broad Margin to My Life, I said that I just want to be free of all this writing that uh, I have spent all my life uh, writing, uh, writing. <laughs> when do I get to, you know, just go to a party <laughs> and but I have done all this I, I have written a lot of books and okay I, I think I've said everything that I need to say so I made a resolution that when this new year starts I am going to retire so I had just retired from teaching at the university and so why can't I retire from the writing too so I ended the book with e now and uh, which means enough okay so <laughs> so I got to the end and and then I went for a 
a few days without <laughs> <laughs> without uh, writing it. But and then you know I, I have these thoughts and and, <laughs> and 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 then the voices you know and then I have experiences that I want to things that I want to describe. So around that time. The University of California Press published Mark Twain's posthumous writings. And Mark Twain, it's sort of autobiographical, and he said that he didn't want this published until a hundred years after he died. And it was the hundredth anniversary. And so that book came out, big hit, and so I thought, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I, so <laughs> so I started writing. I wrote to my agent. It's not that I write to her, but she bugs me all the time. She said, when are you doing something? So I told her that I'm working on something that I want her to try to sell it 100 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very freeing to say to myself, this does not have to be published. I don't have to deal with agent or publisher or editor. I can just write whatever I please, and, it, and I don't have to think about readers. It doesn't matter what they think. And I can describe people, and I don't have to show it to them. And so that's what I'm working on. <laughs> and and you've, you've got a few pages now. I've got a thousand single-space pages. <laughs> I think that translates to 2,000 pages. And I think we could just agree that we won't let her leave until she agrees to publish it <laughs> before a hundred years from now but <laughs> I've been trying to talk her into publishing it uh, before then but let's have your questions thank you that was wonderful my question was in response to what I think you said about writing being a, an intellectual art and yet it seems that you have an interest in meditation as a tool for writing and that sort of dream, that space between your dream life and your waking life as a way to access something that seems to be beyond the intellect but is somehow uh, a sort of tonal thing that lives in the body. And I, I, my sense is for fiction and memoir, maybe the, the, the intellect isn't the greatest asset. Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of meditation and dreams mm -hmm. and and inspiration? Mm -hmm. In addition to um, uh, dreams, there's feelings too. And to me, emotions are of the body and they are wordless. Having a feeling is, to me is, is like bodily sensations. But if I use my mind, which my mind uses words, and when I try to find the words for a feeling, okay, now, if it's a bodily sensation, I could say that there's a shivering or quivering or a, a knot in the stomach. And Okay, now, those kinds of words are uh, describing of physical sensation. But then when you start to think of, um, okay, what caused this feeling? Um, your true love has just told you that you're, that, that she's leaving. 
right away, that starts to put a story or a uh, uh, something more to the feeling that uh, 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 more than just a sens physical sensation, there starts to be a story. And then, um, it, it, and here's these veterans, you know, they're, they're just wild. Um, but then when, when they start to use their mind to say, oh, maybe I broke a moral precept. Again, that's done with words. This is why I, I, I say it's the mind. It's using the mind to work on all this invisible stuff that we need to deal with. Maxine, I'm always interested in uh, the life of a writer. Uh, how did you become a writer? I mean, what was it? Uh, did you take prenatal writing courses? <laughs> or yeah. um, <laughs> no, uh, did it start at a young age? Uh, and when did you realize that you were a writer and commit yourself to writing? I think I was writing three incarnations ago. I have asked myself that, and it just seems to have come that I did it in my former lifetime. And then uh, when I was born, my mother said, oh, you were talking story right away. I talked at a very early age, and I was already saying poems and stories. And then when I, oh, when I got the alphabet, <laughs> I could even write it in Chinese, just phonetically, and, and then, uh, I have always uh, written. Oh, I mean, maybe uh, I do have uh, influences from my parents too, because um, my father was a poet, and uh, and his thing was that he's memorized. He, he's memorized Confucius. He's memorized classical Chinese poetry, and he would say it all the time. And my mother uh, talks story. And she would tell about uh, things that happened in China, the war that was there, also history, also uh, the, uh, the uh, adventure stories, the uh, bedtime stories, the, the three kingdoms, uh, the monkey stories. So both my parents were uh, like oral uh, storytellers and poets. And, and I think that it, it must come from that too. You seem to talk about moral injury like an individual interpersonal thing and like healing as internal. Could you talk about moral injuries on a societal level and like how we heal societies? I meant it as a uh, societal thing, you know, that we are injured both as uh, individuals and as the community. We are all injured. I have talked about I guess on an individual level is how, how when we write, of course it's individual, but um, this, uh, the veterans, while they are writing individually, we also meet as a group. So we are writing in community. So much like a writing workshop where you encourage one another, criticize one another, but there's another component, which is that we are a spiritual community. So when we meditate together, and we are a sangha, we have created a spiritual community. And uh, we truly are one another's uh, brothers and sisters, and we are a family. 
the healing happens when somebody goes to war and they come back and they are so alienated. They have nobody understands them. Uh, they're, they're they're homeless in the streets. But when we form this community, then uh, they become part of us. Let's see. There's there's a poet. Uh, in our group, and he, he writes a poem about um, coming back from the Vietnam War, and then he goes to Nantucket Island so that he can just be alone on that island. And he has a dog, and his dog's name is Christopher. Christopher is beginning to bring him home, and then he talks about uh, going into the salt water and uh, seeing the bubbles of his breath. And toward the end of the poem, Out of the Water, he, he says, uh, uh, breathing, breathing, I am um, I'm alive again or home again. Uh, or breathing, I could write poetry again. What happened was this guy, uh, he was a poet. He went to Vietnam and he lost his poetry, he lost everything. And then he came back and when he says breathing in, what he's talking about is inspiration. And in meditation, uh, there is the conscious breathing in and the breathing out. And I am now realizing that, uh, you know, artists, we're always looking for inspiration. You don't have to look. Just breathe in. Just consciously breathe in and you are inspired. Something does happen, and something comes alive. And then when you breathe in and out with other people, and you're aware, conscious, and awake of doing that, um, there is, uh, you come home to your own body and, and home to your people. And you find out you do have a people. Hi, Maxine. I'm curious to know how you managed to grapple with any racism or misogyny you might have faced, especially in the beginning of your career, um, what you did actively to try and kind of cope with that. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. If you think of like one situation at a time, <laughs> I, I usually can't cope with it. I am just stunned and hurt, and I I can't think of what to say, and I don't know how to reply. That's my normal way of dealing with it. But if you look at it as a from a very wide perspective, uh, a way of dealing with it is uh, to use its energy and and to make a story, uh, make art. Uh, I I guess that's. Oh, here's a Buddhist way of dealing with it. Uh, it's, you, you know, the, the Buddhists have a, the Dalai Lama teaches this too. It, it's a very long meditation. And um, you, you start off by um, breathing in and out. And um, you wish for like goodness and happiness and joy for myself as I meditate and, and just uh, breathe in happiness and goodness and joy and, and you can also breathe out 
goodness and happiness. There's another one where you can breathe in the horribleness and then breathe out goodness. You could also do it the other way. You can breathe in good and, and blast the bad out there. Okay, so the, the, the first uh, stage is to love yourself. And then the next one is to think of somebody that you love and you wish them goodness and happiness and joy and peace. And you do that for a long time. And then you think of a, a neutral person, you know, somebody you don't know very well, you don't have feelings one way or another. And you you meditate on them and wish them peace and joy and happiness and goodness. And then, by this time, you are a pretty uh, evolved person. And then you pick up this enemy, somebody that you hate, and uh, somebody who's done you wrong, and uh, somebody who's been sexist and racist to you, and you wish them well and goodness and happiness and so that's the way the Dalai Lama says to deal with it. <laughs> Hi, I thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Can you tell us a little bit about your own reading life and your your relationship to the arts, to, to other musicians, to artists, what you like to listen, you know, who your influences are on, in those directions, from those directions? Mm -hmm. Oh, let me see. Uh, let's see. The, the book I'm reading right now is Coetzee. He's, and the book is uh, Elizabeth Costello. And... Uh, I'm not quite sure whether I, I like it. <laughs> it. It's a story about an aging old woman uh, writer. And, uh, and she goes around the country giving readings and talking to people. <laughs> and, and she's a vegetarian. And, and she's gotten so that she's been lecturing people about about their cruelty to animals, and she's turning into a crank, and uh, it's. Um, but it's very interesting because I came across this story in um, uh, the best American essays, and uh, and I thought Elizabeth Costello was a real person, and looked her up, and I found she's not. She's a fictional character, and so it shouldn't be in best American essays. This is a fiction. And so this is just right up my alley, you know, is this fiction or not fiction? <laughs> I, I've also uh, just read uh, George Saunders, um, the Lincoln and the Bardo, and that is an, uh, amazing, too, to take American history and an American president and look at him from the Tibetan Buddhist point of view. I mean, we are in a Bardo, and... Lincoln was in a bardo, and uh, oh, so um, American Literature Association convention. Some of us are going to uh, do a dramatic reading of that, and and uh, and Earl's going to be in it, and um, and I am going to play the ghost of Lincoln's uh, uh, son, uh, Little Willie. So uh, that book is very interesting in that. Um, 
there are all these many, many levels of reality. Is there afterlife? Is there after death? Uh, uh, and right there, the cemetery where Willie Lincoln is buried, that is like sacred ground, and there are spirits who who stay there and they can't leave. And, and uh, Lincoln comes, uh, uh, he, he's just heartbroken. I mean, this his son is dead. And on the reality plane, he comes to the cemetery, he goes inside the tomb to hold the dead body of his son. But on another bardo, the spirit is communicating um, father and son. Um, uh, so so th those are the two latest things I've been reading. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's just so wonderful to hear you talk. Um, when you were talking about figuring out how to write The Woman Warrior, because there were certain things you could not address directly, um, and that gave form to the book, I guess, the way obstacles do. But uh, kind of an earlier version of Dinah's question, were there authors who helped you figure out that puzzle of how to tell that story that was fiction and nonfiction at the same time? I like very much uh, Virginia Woolf's Orlando. I, I like the way that she can make a character live for 400 years so that, uh, so that I could cover all the, the history that I, I want. I like the way that she can um, write about time and the inner life and the outer life. Um, what I did with the... Um, woman warrior was there was one form that I knew I could master that I had already mastered it and that's the essay I mean that is what we learned how to write in college and uh, and actually we didn't learn any other form that was the only form and uh, so the woman warrior really is a series of five personal essays. Um, I felt that using um, the essay form, I'm able to introduce dramatic moments, but I can also explain them. I can do an explication. Uh, I don't tell the story as a straight narrative, but kind of intersperse it with the. Uh, essayist voice in which I tell you what it means. Um, okay, then maybe the first three chapters are um, essay, because I feel like a non-swimmer who's hanging on to the edge of the pool. Uh, this is going to be an essay. So, <laughs> so and, then, and then, but there's other stuff that doesn't fit neatly, and uh, and, and then I was writing, um, by this time I've been writing a, a first person narrative for 30 years. And, uh, and those chapters are first person. And then I thought, I am a, such, I am so self-centered. And, uh, and I'm never going to be a, a great writer until I can do omniscient. And to do omniscient, I need a third-person pronoun. And uh, so in the fourth chapter, I have, uh, I have 
my mother and my aunt, who has just come back from China. Uh, she's come from China, and she's in pursuit of her husband, who's a bigamist, because he's married an American. And, and to me, this was like an adult story. I didn't want to tell it from that girl point of view that I have in the first three chapters. And I'd never done this before, you know, with the um, just this straight narrative, uh, omniscient. And, and then I thought of a form. A form came to me. I was watching I Love Lucy. <laughs> and it's perfect, perfect. There's... There's uh, Lucy and Ethel. That's my mother, my aunt, and uh, and they're plotting what to do, and they're going to make trouble for for uh, for Desi <laughs> and Fred, right? And so, you know, before the first commercial, so this is the first scene in the, in, in my story. So I, I have the women thinking what to do. Okay, now now they're going to confront the bigamist and. And so, yeah, that's exactly what happens in an I Love Lucy episode. You know, they, they lead up to it, and then there's the confrontation scene, and then it all, all hell breaks loose. And, <laughs> and, and then, so that's the influence. I Love Lucy. <laughs> to bring together a couple of the questions about social harm and social healing and about racism and sexism and... It seems to me that there was a time when I was a little baby professor mm -hmm. when Woman Warrior was a book that was the most assigned book in mm -hmm. American it academia. Was. It, was. it was everywhere. It was part of every syllabus. And I think that that was a moment of social healing at work. Oh. Oh. That, that, was a, that was a moment in which America was facing itself in a new way. And you're writing helped us do that. Oh, thank you. I never thought about it like that, that when America started reading my work and understanding it or taking it in, mm -hmm. that it made a difference. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. Oh, it did. oh, no wonder I got the Lifetime Achievement yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for breathing the goodness into us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation between Maxine Hong Kingston and Tom Lutz, recorded a month ago at Reza Aslan and Jessica Jackley's beautiful house. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour. Thank you.